Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Human Rights, Equality, and Water at the Local Level, features Human Rights Center Executive Director Amanda Lyons in conversation with visiting experts Professor Martha Davis of Northeastern University School of Law and Jason Bailey, a civil rights attorney with the NAACP, to discuss innovative litigation and policy advocacy efforts to advance equal access to drinking water in the United States. They discuss these efforts in light of international standards and best practices on the human right to water and sanitation. This discussion was recorded on May 12, 2022. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. So my name is Amanda Lyons. I'm the executive director of the Human Rights Center here at the law school. Um, and some of my work centers around the right to water. So for me, it's especially exciting to have the, the conversation that we're hosting today um, and to be able to welcome Jason Bailey and Martha Davis to campus. Um, they're in town for the Equal Justice Conference downtown, and it was just really lucky that we were able to grab them and steal some of their time and bring them over to campus. So um, unfortunately, Jenny Green isn't able to join us today. She's under the weather. Um, she's doing really great work on the right to water and other human rights questions um, in northern Minnesota. So we'll find another time to be able to showcase some of her great work. Um, this, this conversation is connected to some work that I'm doing with Veronica Calavid, who's here. We're looking at the right to water in rural communities, and that has been supported in part by the Institute on the Environment, so we're grateful for their, their help on that. And so the lunches are also compliments of the Institute on the Environment. I also want to thank Darren and Randy from Communications and IT who are making all this possible. So just a, a quick note from me, and then we'll turn it over to our speakers so the, the human right to water is especially interesting, um, I think, in terms of advocacy and social justice work because it can serve to really unify different groups, legal, non-legal, people concerned with different subgroups or, or themes. The human right to water can tend to be kind of catalyzing and bridge building, and so it's a really interesting frame for looking at, at human rights work. Um, there's kind of been two maybe limitations that we can think about in that work. One is the origins of the human right to water have really been focused on potable water for personal and domestic use and a lot of focus on developing countries and less, less look at either water questions in, in developed or global north countries and, and not as connected to questions with freshwater resources, so environmental justice. And there's been a lot of great um, expansion and, and, and advances in that area, so that's exciting to see. And uh, another limitation has been that we don't have the human right to water codified, of course, here in the United States. And so advocates have gotten around that work or, or done this, this great work really from an equality or non-discrimination lens. And so it's, it's really exciting to see how they're, they're taking that on. And that's really going to be the focus of the conversation today. Um, our plan is to start with just a few questions, prepared questions for, for Martha and Jason and, and any follow-up questions that they have for each other. And then we'll turn it over to you all here in the building or on Zoom. So if you have questions as we go along, if you're um, following us online, please feel free to put the questions at any time into the Q&A 
And if, if you're here, for those of you that are here in the building with us, you'll be able to ask your questions up here at the microphone when we get to that part. And I hope that you will do that so we can hear different voices in the conversation. So with that, I'd like to just make a brief introduction of our speakers today, and then I will turn it over to them. So Martha Davis is the, a University Distinguished Professor of Law at the Northeastern School of Law. She co-directs the Program on Human Rights and Global Economy and is the Faculty Director of New Law Lab. She teaches classes in the area of constitutional law, U.S. human rights advocacy, and professional responsibility. She's really written widely on, on human rights, on women's rights, and social justice questions. Um, she has uh, the first textbook that was ever developed for human rights advocacy in the United States. Martha co-wrote that and is now updating that, I think. Um, or is it the Bringing Human Rights Home that's being updated? The textbook. It's a really great work um, looking at human rights work here in the, in the U.S. And before um, joining the Academy, Professor Davis was Vice President and Legal Director for the Now Legal Defense and Education Fund. So she was a women's rights practitioner for many years. Um, and I'll brag, Martha is also a friend, if I can say that. And uh, we worked on two projects together over the pandemic and we're on Zoom all the time. So for me, it's really great to have Martha here in person and back on campus. Um, and we're also joined today by Jason Bailey. Um, Jason is uh, assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Um, in that work, he uses litigation and other kinds of advocacy to advance racial justice in the areas of economic justice, criminal justice, and education. He's had several different related roles before taking up that role. He's based in, in D.C. Now he was a trial attorney with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in Memphis, Tennessee, and he worked on employment discrimination there, was a judicial clerk in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Arkansas, where he's from originally, and he was an Equal Justice Works Fellow with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law and did a lot of work in housing discrimination and other questions there. So it's exciting to hear those backgrounds because I think it tells you kind of the wealth of wisdom and perspective that both of our guests bring to questions of water justice. So we will hear from them now. Um, I might have to ask the questions from up here, right? So Jason, maybe you could get us started. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about um, the work you're doing most recently on water affordability and the Fair Housing Act litigation that you've done in Detroit and Cleveland? I'll turn it over to you. Sure. Um, and thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to be here and uh, join this discussion. Um, so like Professor Lyons mentioned, uh, my background is mostly in um, enforcement of anti-discrimination statutes. Um, um, and at LDF, um, you know, this is something that has uh, really piqued our interest over the years um, with the um, acknowledgement or recognition that water has become increasingly um, unaffordable for uh, black communities and other communities of color um, across the country. And so um, you know, just from hearing, you know, reading reports and just discussions with advocates across the country, uh, we came to a realization that uh, this was an issue that really needed to be um, addressed. Um, but, you know, we had a, a really big question about um, how to do that. And so one of my um, colleagues, Cody Montag, um, she uh, took a sabbatical to write a report and really study this issue. And the report's called um, watercolor. Um, and basically, um, what that study did was um, it 
um, really kind of did a survey of the water affordability crisis um, in the country, um, but specifically in two uh, major cities that um, seem to have some of the most egregious um, collection practices when it came to water debt. Those were Baltimore and Cleveland. And so uh, both of those cities had really um, um, aggressive policies of placing liens on homes for unpaid water debt. And what we saw happening was that um, there was a significant loss of uh, black home ownership um, in both of those communities um, in, in the black communities there. So the report um, really kind of outlines the problems there and also potential solutions. And so um, what came from that report was, um, you know, a lot of pol policy advocacy. Um, you know, we, we were um, a part of a group of uh, advocates that essentially advocated for um, a local ordinance in Baltimore called the Water Accountability, Accountability and Equality Act. And so basically what that um, uh, law did there was um, it um, eliminated liens um, there for unpaid water debt. And it also um, created a water affordability program there, which tied um, income to um, uh, water bills so that water would be more affordable to people regardless of whether or not um, they can pay for it. So. Um, in, in addition to that, uh, that law also um, provided some procedural protections for residents so that um, they could be able to um, dispute their bills if they felt like they were erroneous. Um, so in addition to that, uh, it also led to a federal class action that we're currently litigating um, in the Northern Dist District of Ohio, um, where we're advocating for, um, or we're alleging that um, Cleveland's uh, water lane policy there um, disproportionately impacts uh, black communities in violation of the Fair Housing Act. Um, and also, uh, we're alleging that their uh, policies and practices violate um, their customers' due process rights because they don't really give people an opportunity to um, dispute their bills. So um, happy to talk more about those in detail. But um, in short, um, you know, from Cody's report and then also just um, through our advocacy, we, we felt like, uh, you know, our experience would allow us to use the Fair Housing Act, which is something that um, really I think most people don't think of when they think about water justice and affordability to um, address these concerns there. So um, happy to talk more about those um, a little bit later on, but um, that's just kind of a glimpse of what we've been doing um, um, in the past couple of years to address these issues. Thanks, Jason. And we'll, yeah, we'll have plenty of time for more questions, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about, from the litigation work that you're doing um, in this context or another, are there certain kind of structural reforms or changes that you think would open up better pathways? Or do you have kind of recommendations that at a policy level that are based on your work? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think the biggest thing that we're looking to address um, um, through these uh, cases is um, it really comes down to water affordability. And so um, one of the big issues that we're currently litigating right now is, uh, you know, as part of uh, our burden of proof under the Fair Housing Act, we have to prove that um, there's a better way for um, these cities to collect um, other than their water liens. And so uh, one of the positions that we've taken is that um, uh, one uh, method would be to adopt water affordability programs like the one that I mentioned that 
um, Baltimore adopted, um, and other cities like Philadelphia adopted, which um, again, tie income to uh, people's water bills. And so um, that would allow people, um, again, regardless of how much they make, be able to still um, uh, be able to afford their water bills. And so we think that uh, that would be a, um, a great first step in terms of addressing these issues. And then also, um, um, from LDS perspective, uh, you know, the elimination of water shutoffs um, policies altogether would be another um, approach. And so um, those are just some of the, the policy um, policies that we're, we're thinking through and um, certainly the ones that we are advocating for in our litigation. And so, um, again, through our advocacy in Baltimore um, and other places, uh, we think that, um, you know, these types of uh, alternative measures really make an impact and um, allow people to continue to have access regardless of their ability to pay. Great. Thanks, Jason. And now we'll turn to you, Martha. Um, I know you've done a lot of work in different areas related to the right to water, but maybe you could tell us about the most recent work connected to local policies and the quality audits. Sure. Thanks. Um, and thanks to Amanda for inviting me and, and Jason again. Um, and it's uh, great to see a few people that I know here. So um, I've long been interested in um, uh, local human rights implementation. Um, you know, what, what's happening in cities, what's happening subnationally in terms of human rights. And so through that interest, I started looking at, at water and sanitation because often that is um, administered, certainly affordability in the U.S. is administered at the local level. Um, as opposed to the national level. And um, really, it was uh, seven or eight years ago on my sabbatical that I started, uh, I was in Sweden and started working on issues of Roma people who were being uh, evicted from settlements around Sweden and then around Europe, and thinking about how it was that access to water was being used to control people. You know, the, the uh, Roma folks, um, you know, irreg in irregular settlements, chose where to live based on the access to water. And so when they were evicted, they were, you know, displaced from access to water and sanitation. That was one of the, it was even one of the things, the sanitation issue was even one of the things that contributed to their eviction because they said, you know, that this is not a place that's set up for sanitation. You have to go elsewhere. But nothing was provided to, for them to, to really relocate in a, in a, um, a way that was going to be um, uh, sustainable. So, so starting with that, I got more interested in looking at what was going on in the U.S. And Around the same time, a little bit before, actually, there had been uh, massive water shutoffs in Detroit in particular, tens of thousands of people shut off from water, uh, and then also Baltimore, as Jason mentioned. And uh, it made me think that one of the reasons that those shutoffs were occurring was really to control people. It wasn't just that, um, you know, like a simple contract issue. It was really, in Detroit especially, a way to try to displace people from, from the inner city, um, uh, you know, move out and develop those, those areas. Um, so in the U.S., uh, water prices have been rising um, significantly. Um, now inflation is very high, so it's hard to say now exactly how it relates to inflation. But for the past 15, 20 years, it's been at a higher rate than inflation. And um, the reason is uh, aging infrastructure that um, has been neglected. The federal government cut back significantly on providing funding to local governments to, to um, repair leaks and so on. And so local governments are much more limited in their tax base in, in their ability to take, handle those kinds of things. Without that federal support, a lot of um, maintenance was, was put off. Um, the recent infrastructure bill uh, is, is helpful in that regard, but it, it didn't allocate enough to deal with the backlog of, of repairs that, are, that need to be done in order to 
to um, you know provide an adequate infrastructure. And then climate change also contributes with the um, you know we had the tornado warnings and the 80 mile winds and the incredible rain last night. Those kinds of things um, uh, overwhelm the the sewer system and uh, and then require additional expense to treat water and to to maintain it. So several things coming together now to make water um, uh, more and more expensive. And as that happens, um, there's, I, I think it's even more important to ensure equity in how water rates are set. You know, for um, many years, I think water was kind of neglected because electricity and gas and rent and housing, all those other things, uh, household bills were more expensive than water. But as water increases in, in cost, it's important to look at how the policies relating to water are, are implemented. And I think it's important to do it as now before water becomes even more expensive, you know, because it's just going to be harder to, um, to address the equity issues as, uh, as it becomes more contentious. So um, a few years ago at Northeastern, um, I and a couple, uh, some sociologists on our faculty got a grant from the National Science Foundation to explore uh, rate-setting processes, water affordability processes in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. And that included um, interviewing policymakers uh, about their awareness of the human rights aspects of water. Did they see themselves working in the shadow of human rights? Were they thinking about human rights as they worked on these policies? And what we, what we discovered looking at this was really an incredible patchwork of regulations. You know, it's, uh, so much of this is regulated at the very local level um, or regional level. In Massachusetts and, and Pennsylvania, there's very little privatization. Uh, in Massachusetts, there's only 3% of customers that are um, working with private um, uh, water uh, um, utilities. And so it's really you know, regulated largely at the, by, by, by municipalities, often at you know, the very local level. And as Jason said, tax liens are often used as a way to um, collect uh, uh, payments that haven't been made. Uh, shutoffs are used uh, in that way. And what we found in the interviews was that the administrators viewed this as a tool to collect funds. You know, they needed to, to balance their budgets. And if they didn't have the threat of shutoffs or the threat of liens, that they would never get the payments. And so it's not even that they um, are using those things to, to, you know, as an, as to get the payments in an end result. It's, it's the threat of those that, um, that, that they felt they needed in order to um, be able to collect the, the bills. Um, the, what we found was that um, it was often the case that these local utilities didn't provide very much information about the possibility of negotiating a payment plan. There might be information buried in a, you know, in a bill that you got that said something about that or maybe something on a website, but it wasn't something that was um, advertised very much. Um, there wasn't any regulation of those kinds of things, you know, what kinds of offers might be on the table in terms of a payment plan. Um, there are discounts in some of the communities for some people, but those discounts are not even always need-based, oddly. You know, so in Boston, for example, you, you can get a discount for water as a senior homeowner, but the, you don't have to prove any need. You know, you could be John Kerry, right? <laughs> um, the former Secretary of State living on Beacon Hill and, and qualify for a, a discount on your water. Um, so, uh, and the other thing that we found was that the, the utilities themselves, a lot of them, you know, strapped for money. They were not doing any data analysis themselves. They were not collecting information about numbers of shutoffs, who was being shut off, um, you know, tax liens, following up um, to see how they could help people. 
Um, and we were not the only researchers who had difficulty even just getting data about how many shutoffs they'd done. You know, we did FOIL requests, freedom of information law requests, and some places just couldn't tell us. You know, they just didn't know. So, um, so one thing I've been working on recently is there, there's now a move to expand the data collection and transparency, and it really relates some to, to what Jason's talking about. Um, so in California, um, they passed a law in 2019 requiring um, that public utilities uh, publish data on the number of shutoffs that they have, have done. I think it's annually. Uh, more recently, in 2021, Illinois passed a law requiring monthly reporting on a whole range of information. It was included, water was included in a law that uh, focuses on electricity and gas, and it's not uncommon for you for these other utilities to have to publish this data, but now Illinois has included the water utilities, and so it's a big step to require this kind of data production uh, in terms of transparency of what um, utilities are doing. And um, then I'll, the final thing I'll mention is that in addition to these, to these kinds of bills, and I'll say the Illinois bill is focused on uh, only on privatized water utilities, which make up 8% of the customers in Illinois. So it's not a statewide thing. It's only for the privatized water. But um, the other thing that I've been working on is something that we call an equity audit. And uh, it's really another approach. It's a softer approach. And the idea is to incentivize um, these water utilities to collect and analyze data for bias. And the idea really comes from, and I'll expand on this a little bit, really comes from a human rights framework that um, in San Francisco some years ago they passed a local women local version of the Women's Rights Convention, the CEDAW Convention, and what they did in connection in connection with that was mandate, <coughs> excuse me, gender equity audits by <coughs> the local the city agencies, and so the thought is that maybe there's some possibility of incentivizing equity audits for local water utilities that would um, increase transparency and and you know the the people running these utilities are not people who want to discriminate or bad people. They're people that just have not focused on this and haven't collected the data. And if we incentivized it in some way, maybe there would be, you know, an interest in uh, examining their own practices to ensure that they're um, administering them in a way that's equitable. So. Thanks, Martha. That's great to get to hear more about that project. It's really, really interesting. And I guess my, my question for both of you would be related to that. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about the ways that the water challenges fall on different groups differently. So either how, I know you're taking a, a discrimination lens in, in your work, Jason, so how does that connect to structural racism, these questions with water? Or is it, you know, is it, do you see women experiencing these shutoffs in different ways or people with disabilities? Um, we've had a couple different UN special rapporteurs that have looked at the situation in the United States that have focused on either gender or homeless population. So I'd just be curious to hear in your work, Jason and, and Martha, how do you see different subgroups experiencing these situations different? Go ahead. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that uh, just from thinking about uh, our work in Cleveland and Detroit, um, it definitely seems like in addition to the racial um, aspect of it, um, and, and just thinking about our clients in particular, a large portion of the people that we work with also happen to be disabled. Um, and, you know, it really makes sense if you think about it just because um, a lot of 
um, folks in that um, group are often um, folks who are on uh, limited income um, and, you know, are typically the folks who have the, the least amount at the end of the month to, you know, make their payments on their bills, especially um, rising water bills. And so um, just, just thinking about, you know, intersectionality, I think that um, that would probably be the, the biggest uh, um, um, group of folks who are also experiencing um, these types of issues. And so um, it's something that we're, we're, we're definitely thinking about, um, not just in terms of this realm, but in other aspects of um, um, our, our portfolio at LDF is just thinking about how um, we can use the Americans with Disabilities Act to address a lot of um, um, these concerns, not only in water justice, but um, in other um, um, uh, scenarios that you might not think of normally, like uh, voting access um, and things of that nature. So um, it's definitely, uh, you know, a cause for concern. Um, and, and again, I, I think that um, it's, it's something that we're, we're looking for, um, to how, how to address that um, in addition to, you know, the Fair Housing Act and then also with the ADA. I think that that's another tool that we could probably use more to address these concerns. Great. Thanks. Martha? Yeah, so I'll just, I'll just mention, I mentioned before that um, as water prices have risen, some utilities have responded by creating these discount programs, which are typically pretty modest. Um, and disability is often one of the categories that they use as a basis for a discount, but it's not always, you know. So you've got many, many jurisdictions that offer no discounts because the idea is that they have to balance their budget. And if they offer a discount to one group, then the other group that has that also needs water will have to pay more, you know. So there's this rationale of, uh, of um, you know, with that, that doesn't look at income, but just looks at uh, consumption, basically. Um, and uh, uh, the other categories uh, that are used sometimes are seniority is the most most likely one. So seniors can often get modest discounts on their on their water, whether they need it or not. Uh, as I mentioned, some disabled, um, and those are really the the big ones, you know. Um, uh, and it's only in that I know of Philadelphia and Baltimore that have connected um, the water rates to income in a way that isn't. That, that seems more sensible in terms of ensuring that people can actually afford their water. I'll just mention renters. Um, we've, uh, um, uh, you know, water costs are very intimately related to housing, uh, of course, you know, and Jason's using the Fair Housing Act to try to address this. Um, again, it varies a lot around the country in terms of how renters' obligations for water is structured. Often it's put into the rent and it might be that a renter would qualify for a senior discount or a disabled discount, but they don't have a direct relationship with a water um, utility. And so the discount doesn't, isn't given to the landlord because it's the, um, the landlord doesn't qualify. And so renters often are, are you know, assuming the burden of the rising water costs in a way that um, you know, seems, uh, doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't connect with um, what their actual need is, you know, and so, um, so that's one thing that I've been um, thinking about. There are a few localities in the country that provide subsidies for renters through their housing bills or through uh, electric bills to subsidize them for increased water costs. Um, Seattle does that, Portland, Oregon, Austin, Texas only recently started doing that. And, um, 
And interestingly, in Austin in particular, and this gets back to the, Amanda's question, they did that in Austin started doing that after they um, did a project with the University of Texas looking at racial equity in um, water pricing. And the University of Texas students said, well, the, you know, a big problem that you have is that renters are disproportionately people of color and they don't benefit from any of these programs. And so you should develop a program of some way of providing some relief to renters who otherwise, because they don't have a direct connection with the water utility, are not, are just assuming the increased costs. Um, so, so I raise that because, you know, in Minneapolis, there's a huge uh, racial housing gap. In Boston, where I'm from, there's a huge racial housing gap. And so to the extent that you have a program that targets discounts and subsidies to homeowners or people who have direct relationships with the water company, you're excluding a whole group that's disproportionately people of color and often lower income people. These are people that for whatever reason, haven't purchased a, a home, but usually it's because they can't afford it. Uh, and then in Boston, I, I can't speak to Minneapolis, in Boston, this, is, this compounds the redlining that occurred and still occurs, you know, in terms of people's uh, mortgages and access to, um, to property. So it's, um, it's really a little additional tax, you know, on, that disproportionately falls on people of color that, that um, you know, that is then compounded by the uh, increased rise, the increase in water prices. So. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful example of kind of where a policy is focused on something that seems neutral but has these very clear disparate uh, impacts. Um, I I want to open it up for any questions that you have. So for those of you that are following us online, please feel free to put questions in the the Q and A or the chat, and then I'll I'll turn over the microphone in, in just a few seconds. I wanted to ask one question that might be might be unfair in the sense that I, I know that a lot of your work has focused on urban areas. But one question I have is, do you, do you think the trends that you're seeing, are they specific to urban settings? Or, or can you say anything about people that are either living in suburban contexts or the kind of bigger cities away from urban centers or even in rural communities? I'm curious whether the organizations you're working with or your work itself, if you can speak to kind of the different geographies of some of these questions. Maybe I'll ask Martha if you would go oh, first on that and then I'll sure. turn it over to Jason. Sure. So the, the studies that we've been doing have focused some on very small communities, but they're not rural. Um, having said that, uh, one of the things I was involved in was um, with the U.S. Commission on, U.S. Civil Rights Commission um, has a state advisory committee in Massachusetts that I'm part of, and we had a hearing um, on water pricing um, that brought in some people that we're talking about some of the issues faced by rural communities. And I think what it boils down to, at least in Massachusetts, is you know, still the lack of regulation and the lack of transparency. You have, in Massachusetts anyway, great variations. Um, you have people with septic systems. You have people that get their water through fire districts as opposed to utilities. You know, and and the, we, we learned later that the state auditor is actually look, trying to figure this out because it's so you know, uh, disparate, you know, and so unconnected, you know, the different ways that the water is regulated at the state level. And I would guess that at least in New England, that's probably typical. I can't speak to the, to the, to the Midwest. Um, and uh, I'll also say, and Jason may be able to expand on this, is that sanitation is an area where the, the rural condition is very different, I think, than the, than the urban condition. And um, there's been a lot of attention to, to that, particularly in the South. Um, so that's, I guess that's all I can really add to the, that question. 
Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with all of that. Um, to the sanitation point, that is something that we're seeing a lot uh, more of, and it's become um, you know an, an issue that's kind of got national attention. Um, there's been um, efforts to try to address that in, uh, um, in Lowndes County, Alabama, um, where um, you know a lot of um, folks, uh, black people in, in rural communities, don't have access to um, traditional sewer systems, um, and so that's caused. Um, you know, a lot of uh, sanitation issues because they, um, a lot of people can't afford um, the types of systems necessary to really have a, um, um, a, a more traditional sewer system. And so um, that creates all types of issues related to, you know, the spread of disease and things of that nature. And so that's something that, um, that we're seeing not just in uh, Miles County, but in other parts of uh, the rural um, South as well. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, um, in, in, in some respects, um, things are, 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 are worse just because, you know, um, like uh, Martha mentioned, uh, you know, some, a lot of places have uh, customer assistance programs that provide some type of, you know, financial relief. But um, in, in smaller places, you don't have that. So uh, shutoffs tend to be more aggressive down there, um, and people don't really have um, 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 a safety net that, you know, while, you know, in some places, like I would say Detroit has it, it's not as robust as we would like it to be. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, in, in smaller communities, you don't have that option. So um, shutoffs tend to be the, the way to go um, um, for um, water departments um, in those places. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that those are issues, uh, you know, issues related to, to, to sewer, um, you know, especially in the South with the aging infrastructure. Um, are also issues that, that have become more of an issue as people start to become uh, more aware of them. Um, and so I, I, I definitely think that it's something that we definitely be paying more attention to um, and, and, and something that I, hopefully we can address at some point. Thanks. Yeah, the sanitation question in rural Alabama was really prominent in the visit of Phil Alston when he was Special Rapporteur of Extreme Poverty when he came to the U.S., um, we are in the law school, so I could do cold calling if I wanted. It's allowed here, but I'm going to um, turn to the folks that are, are here with us in person to see if anyone has a question. Just run this up. Did you have a question for Oh, great. Well, I appreciate this pre presentation, Amanda. Actually, it's not what I expected, um, because in Minneapolis, the issues of water really relate to led in the, in the aging uh, uh, sanitary water supply. And probably the uh, area is most aggravated are our older neighborhoods. And, um, and so your, Margaret, your reference to infrastructure funding and uh, your notion that we should look to the federal government for additional funding for, for local infrastructure. Um, has that been addressed at the federal level? Do you want to introduce yourself also? Oh, my name is Steve. I'm a graduate of the law school. Great, thanks. Great, thanks. Um, well, you know, as part of the um, uh, ARPA funds, and then part of the, um, the is it Build Back Better? The part of the part of the big infrastructure bill that was passed recently. So there was. I'm not going to be able to give you the number, but there was a significant pot of money in there that was actually targeted to water infrastructure. 
And, you know, I would argue it should also go to information infrastructure, you know, that they should be also collecting information about how they're administering these programs. But it's targeted to water infrastructure. But it was uh, estimated to be only at about 25% of what the actual need was, um, you know, based on looking at, you know, nationally at, uh, at the aging infrastructure. So it's, a, it's not nothing. It's an important infusion of cash, but it's not going to solve the problem in, in the long run for sure. The, um, I mentioned that, the, um, that there's there been a significant drawback of the federal government. In, over the years, it was really during the Reagan administration that there was a you know a new uh, an idea of smaller government that the um, the federal government pulled back started pulling back on funding for water infrastructure na nationwide and now I uh, you know it's it's it things that had been grants became loans you know so that it wasn't as beneficial to the local communities because they'd have to pay it back eventually and you know as it before this recent in influx of funds, it was really very little from the federal government that was going to support local, inf local water infrastructure, even though it's such a critical need. Um, do you want to add anything, Jason? You're nodding, so I think you... <laughs> no, I, I agree um, with everything. I, I, I think that, um, you know, when it comes to uh, federal infrastructure funding, it's, it's necessary for them to um, do more. I'm just thinking about... Um, you know, states like Mississippi and particularly Jackson, where they are wrestling currently with this issue of, um, you know, aging infrastructure in, um, you know, predominantly black parts of the, the, the town. Um, and you have a, a state government that um, could be doing more, should be doing more, but is um, for um, a whole host of reasons um, very um, adverse to providing state funding to that. So, um, I know that there there have been efforts to try to get the federal government to do um, more in Jackson, so that they won't end up being, becoming like more of a, a situation in Flint. Um, and there's going to you know have to be a significant um, investment in terms of their um, you know sanitation and sewer system and things of that nature. But um, you know I, I definitely think that you know the the um, uh, most recent round of federal funding that uh, Martha mentioned was helpful, but um, definitely more uh, needs to be done. Um, especially in those places uh, that, um, you know, have, are currently struggling with um, infrastructure problems and, and could use the help right now. And I, and I suppose you may have some particular examples, but um, this is federal funding. I don't know what's going on in Minnesota and Massachusetts. It's very political how that funding gets allocated, you know, so it may not be going to the communities that are most in need. All communities have some need, you know, so uh, the communities that can be, are getting access that funding may may not be the ones that objectively really should be getting it. Great. So I'm I'm seeing Debbie's question in the chat. We'll come to that. I have a couple more questions back here. First, Victor, have you been volunteering? Hi, I'm Victor Molina. I'm a master in human rights student. And I wanted to say thank you about your reflection on equality and non-discrimination and especially the reflection on renters and hold owners was really opened my eyes about this problem. And I wanted to ask if you have any findings related to quality. I know this is about uh, accessibility, but I also wanted to know about that. And especially if you have a focus on equality and non-discrimination regarding to pollution, especially in this moment in which the system is in additional pressure. Thank you. Yeah. So, so I have not focused on quality, which in the U.S. is regulated 
uh, much more on the federal. It's really federally regulated and then locally implemented. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add about, I mean, we could talk about Flint a little bit. I, um, so um, Flint, um, uh, of course, um, is something that LDF has been uh, really uh, focused on um, and has done advocacy for in the past. And I, I, I believe that uh, prior to my time um, at LDF, we filed an amicus brief um, in uh, one of the lawsuits challenging, um, you know, the things that went there uh, down there. So um, it's definitely something that um, we've been paying attention to. Um, um, and, you know, hopefully we can do um, more. But um, it hasn't really been something that we've been uh, focused on lately outside of uh, Flint. But again, definitely uh, a, a terrible um, issue and something that um, should be addressed outside, not just in Flint, but in other communities for sure. Right. And I will say, uh, in the wake of, you know, sort of the incidents in Flint, the Michigan Civil Rights Commission conducted an extensive study. It was all after the fact. You know, they could have, would have been nice if they'd intervened before the fact, but they, all after the fact, they, they studied what had happened, and they concluded that there was unconscious bias in the administration of the water quality, or, you know, the decision-making, I guess, you know, that the failure to react quickly, maybe the, even the initial decision to start using the Flint River, all reflected um, sort of, they said unconscious, but, you know, just sort of racial bias that had it not been the kind of community that it is, that they expected that there would have been different reactions to some of the things that were coming through. Thanks. I want to say um, Henry has just posted a, a link in the chat for you to see. Henry was a water justice fellow here at, at the university and has worked on really interesting maps looking at the overlap of lead pipes in St. Paul overlapping with different um, socioeconomic factors. So that's a great resource that went into the into the chat. I'm going to turn it over to Veronica for a question. Yes, I like Victor's question also like brings me like a, a, like a space for the question that I want to ask and it's about this process of localizing and translating human rights standards that are especially in water are based on legal systems very different than the United States where water is like in like national level consider a human right. Like how is that a translation and like localizing those standards that might not like suit that well on the on the US system. Especially for example here like the due process the substantive due process has been so important but uh, for water and like for example Michigan but it's so different and how it's been approached in other countries when like it doesn't need to go that further. So how is that localization and translation of those standards in water in your work and how you've been managing to, to do that matching sometimes? That is hard. Well, I think, um, you know, there's, we found when we were doing the interviews, there wasn't pushback from anybody. Nobody said, no, water isn't a human right. You know, they, there was, there's general acceptance of that as a rhetorical matter. You know, everyone recognizes the, 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 the need um, for water. And so I think what's uh, more difficult is turning it into some kind of obligation, right? And there are some examples of, of obligations that have been established in, under U.S. law, um, not, not federally, you know, so we don't have a, you know, a national system of affordable water 
Um, but California has adopted as a legislative matter a human right to water. There's a statute that indicates that California you know, recognizes water as a human right. It's not enforceable. It's not something you can take to court. Um, but it has had, an, had implications for what kinds of other laws they pass. And so I mentioned that California uh, requires that uh, local utilities publish their shutoff data. Well, that, that part of that comes from the idea that California has said that water is a human right, and so flowing from that are some obligations that, that local utilities have. Um, there are others, a few other state constitutions that um, identify water as, if not a right, then a value that's recognized in the state constitution. Massachusetts is one of those. Pennsylvania is. I believe Montana um, includes the right to water. So there are a few around the country that not just statutes, but as constitutional matters. There has been very little litigation under those um, to sort of determine what the scope is. And um, then the other thing I'll mention is that there's been, in recent years, a, a push, and maybe some of you uh, are familiar with this, a push to adopt uh, state constitutional amendments that provide a right to a healthy environment. And so New York just in the most recent um, election passed a new constitutional amendment uh, for a right to healthy environment. There's a whole movement of, of um, advocates and lawyers and activists that are working on this. And you know, there's an argument to be made that that right to a healthy environment certainly would encompass some of the issues of sanitation that we're, we're talking about, but that also would have implications for water affordability and, um, uh, and, and dealing with uh, you know, water at a time when um, climate change is affecting its cost for everyone. Yeah, there's there's also been a few um, um, state uh, bills introduced to be, provide people with statutory rights. Um, so, for instance, um, in Georgia, um, I believe a couple of years ago, there was a, a, a bill introduced to give water customers a, a, a bill of rights. So, you know, while um, they wouldn't necessarily have a, a constitutional right to water, they would have uh, procedural, uh, you know, uh, protections to um, do things like challenge their water bill, um, and also just uh, different things that uh, water providers would have to do uh, before um, they could shut off someone's uh, water, such as ensuring that you know the bill is accurate. So um, there have there there have been some uh, some uh, causes for for hope in that front. I'll just add too, and Amanda mentioned earlier that Philip Alston the at the time, the UN Special Rapporteur on, um, on poverty issues, uh, when he visited the US some years ago, um, really emphasized uh, the issue of sanitation and, and water to some extent, you know, as part of his, his poverty um, portfolio. And, and special the other Special Rapporteurs have also been pretty active in the US over the years in framing this as a human right to water. And I think that's one reason there's not so much pushback just on that idea. So. Um, in Detroit, uh, UN Special Rapporteurs on, on water, poverty, housing, all came together to make statements about the shutoffs, you know, and its connection to housing. Um, statements also uh, uh, in the context of Flint. Uh, some years ago, the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to water visited the US and toured around and specifically uh, made statements that, about what was going on in California in terms of sanitation and so on. So I think there's, you know, sort of a, a, a even though the US hasn't ascribed to any of the treaties that, um, or the conventions that would include a human right to water. It's not that there's not any 
um, dialogue in the U.S. around it. There certainly is, and the U.N. Special Rapporteurs have really stimulated some of that. Thanks. And this is just anecdotal, but it does seem like a lot of the local water advocates, especially in Michigan, are connected to global movements on water justice and kind of this infusion of, of standards and norms. And we're yeah, able to call on some of these mechanisms in really interesting ways. Um, I'm going to turn to the questions that we have in the chat. Um, on Brenda's question about uh, freshwater resources, I think we'd be really interested to continue the conversation on right to water and maybe have additional um, uh, uh, panels and, and conversations because that's a whole area where we could expand on. Um, so I'll, it, this relates a little bit to Debbie's question um, on the right to, uh, the rights of nature movement. So maybe I'll just say a word. Um, Professor Jenny Green, who was going to join us today, could speak to this especially. They've been looking at rights related to wild rice in some of their work on the Polymet case up in northern Minnesota. Um, I know that the Menomin movement has connected with the rights of nature framing in their work on wild rice and getting protections for wild rice and the importance that it has culturally. I'm less familiar with that, but the case that um, Veronica and I work with in Colombia also has adopted a, a rights of nature framework. So they, through domestic legislation in Colombia, were able to get a, a river, the Rio Atrato, declared a rights holder and have their rights recognized by the Colombian Constitutional Court. And to implement those rights, a body of guardians, they were called, were nominated. So the people that had collective rights related to the health of the river were given rights to protect the rights of the river. And so it was a really interesting litigation strategy to merge the rights of communities that were affected by pollution and an overuse of water with the rights of nature. And so there's a lot of really interesting things happening at that connection that Debbie pointed out for us. Um, and hopefully we can have more conversations on that also. Wanted to pull out a question from, from Brenda's question here, touches on privatization. And Martha, you mentioned this a little bit in, in Massachusetts. I don't know if either of you can comment on the role of private actors in some of the, the scenarios that you're looking at, or is that, are you dealing mostly with public sector in this work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, our work, um, just in terms of uh, litigation and advocacy, has, has mostly focused on um, public entities. Um, but again, um, going back to CODA's report, uh, it does kind of just outline um, some of the challenges that people often face because of uh, privatization and how often uh, that could lead to um, increased water rates, which again, you know, as, as we mentioned before, like, you know, that's, that's um, an issue that unaffordability um, definitely impacts. Uh, communities of color. So it's it's definitely something that um, we've been keeping track of. Uh, but um, just in terms of our litigation, we've been specifically more focused on public. Yeah, I'll just say, um, ironically, maybe because it's not what you what you expect. Um, the the states have been more ready to regulate the investor owned utilities than the municipally owned utilities. And um, you know, I need to learn more about why that is, whether it's about home rule, whether it's about, um, you know, state capacity and so on. But, for example, um, you know, at the time of COVID, there uh, many states uh, adopted moratoria. Well, often those were targeted at investor-owned. The, the state, the governor's executive order would be to investor-owned utilities, and then each municipality would adopt its own regulation or its own statement, you know, about shutoffs or about um, you know, liens or whatever it was. And um, 
And so, and likewise, as I mentioned, that Illinois law um, that is now requiring periodic reporting about shutoffs and so on, that is for investor-owned utilities. It's not for any of the publicly owned. Um, and so there maybe there'll be a trickle-out effect um, to the publicly-owned uh, utilities, but the regulation at the state level is of the, of the investor-owned. So, you know, so there's potential to do more to regulate the investor-owned. Um, you know, the door is already open for that through the public utility commissions, through the, um, the acts, acts of the state legislature in a way that it may not be open to create sort of baselines for the locally, the local municipalities. Yeah, what you see in different contexts at the global level is the conversation about how, in terms of inequality, a privatization model is really difficult for communities in rural areas, for example, because the cost-benefit ratio there for private actors is so imbalanced. It's so expensive to get into some of those neighborhoods. And also maybe in poorer communities where you have more likelihood of, of lack of ability to pay, it's less interesting as a, a private investment option. So it seems like something that is a, a key factor. And a question that came up a little bit in, in the resources that, that Henry shared with us is the lead pipes. And I, I thought that was really shocking when I learned about it, the, the cost being put on the people that live there to make those, those changes. That's, that's shocking to me that that would be a private expense as opposed to a, a public investment. I don't know, is that similar to the cases that you've seen, the, that the, the cost of making the necessary reforms to have clean water are put on individuals? To an extent, I mean, um, you know, I think that in terms of affordability and just this issue of that we've been dealing with where people are given uh, the ability to um, challenge their water bills if they feel like it's unaffordable. A lot of a, a common thing that um, that water utilities like to do is is put the impetus back on um, customers. And so typically, what they'll do is they'll say, "Well, there's a leak on, in your at, at your home. Um, you know, it's it's not on our side; it's on your side. So it's incumbent on you to fix that." And so you know, sometimes they'll make an adjustment um, to a bill if it's something that they feel like a customer can't. Um, detect on their own or didn't detect on their own. Um, but, you know, a lot of those um, um, fixes, if they're not on the public utility side, um, they're on the customer's uh, side and it's their burden to, to fix it. So, um, you know, I, I do think that, you know, again, that's, that's something that um, municipalities should pay more closely attention to. And I know that some places are starting to um, adopt um, programs that will assist people in, making those types of repairs in the homes because, you know, the cost is typically astro astronomical. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I think that that's something that um, is, is the causes that, that should be paid closer attention to because, um, again, with the aging infrastructure, um, a lot of people um, are going to have to bear that cost uh, going forward when it comes to not only the water bills, but also the fixing the infrastructure that's, that's causing that. Mm -hmm. Just say one of the... Um sort of great benefits that's part of the Philadelphia program, and I don't know if it's part of Baltimore or not, you can tell me, is the possibility of, of forgiveness of the bill. And so in, in Philadelphia, under their, um, their, it's called a TAP program uh, for um, water affordability, if you keep up with your payments, you know, for a certain period of time, then whatever you owe in the past, which might be for a leak or something like that, will actually be forgiven, um, which is a 
great benefit and you know outside of those tap programs those kinds of benefits are not available but is that the case in baltimore as well you know it's, it's been a while since i looked at the the um, text of the ordinance i think so mm-hmm. but hold me on that yeah yeah i mean the thing with baltimore is as i understand it is that they didn't really they have they're just starting to implement it now because COVID really delayed things and so we don't have it philadelphia has been in place for a few years but with Baltimore, we really don't have a track record of, of how exactly it's going to work. Um, we have just one one minute left. I don't know if you want to leave us with a, a last comment about maybe what's on the horizon for you, what work is coming up, or any last reflection on human rights, equality, and justice in water. Um, well, I'll just I'll just say, I mean, it's exciting that we're having this today. I do think this is a an issue that was kind of um, you know back of mind for a lot of people um, because the cost of because water just seemed to appear you know and it was uh, potable and um, uh, and not too expensive at least in a in a country like the U.S. and so um, you know I'm really glad that the NAACP is doing the work that it's the Inc. Fund rather is doing the work that it's it's doing to kind of surface these issues and, and as I said the equity issues issues in particular as as you know, water becomes more expensive. And I, um, also really happy to be having this conversation. Um, and I would just, uh, you know, encourage everyone to pay closer attention to what's going on in your own communities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the lawsuit that we filed in, in Cleveland started out, or came to our attention initially because of um, some great local reporting that um, just one journalist had um, been doing for a number of years on you know issues related to affordability and people losing their homes um, because of unpaid water debt and so um, you know I think it's just important to um, be mindful of what's going on in your own community um, you know what what programs are out there for people um, as water becomes more unaffordable moving forward and um, just being sure to kind of keep that um, at the forefront of the conversation as um, you know, things progress um, in this area because um, I think that, you know, this is going to be an issue that a lot of communities are going to be um, uh, trying to deal with um, in the coming uh, years. And so I just encourage you all just to kind of keep your eyes and, and ears open to what's going on um, in your own neck of the woods. Great reminder for all of us. Thank you. And I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. Thank our panelists, Martha and Jason. Thanks so much. It's really a privilege to be able to get to have the conversation. So thanks for sneaking away from the conference and and joining us. Thanks. And thanks, everybody online also for joining us. This will be available on the Law Talk series very soon. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.